Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Buffalo Shots Podcast. Hello again and welcome to another Horror Shots podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by none other than MorbidlyBeautiful.com. That awesome little site I've been plugging for the past couple of months anyway. They have some great content up there if you are a horror fan of any shape or form. They just released a couple of great interviews, as well as some other podcasts to go along with your listening of this one. So if that's your thing and you love everything to do with horror, go check out morbidlybeautiful.com. Now, uh, housekeeping. Naturally, that always comes at the beginning of the podcast. You should know this by now. If you do like what you hear, leave a review. Reviews help little guys like me kind of get noticed in the big sea of podcasts out there. So anything you can do to help out the cast would be fantastic. Doesn't matter where you leave these reviews, as long as you leave them, they get found iTunes is probably the best. Stitcher is another good one as well. Two pretty big platforms where I think a lot of the listens come from. But if you have a Google Play or uh, whatever podcatcher you have that you can leave a review on, feel free to do so. Also, if you do want to get in contact with me, you can do that as well. You can do so through email at horrorshotspodcast at gmail.com. Instagram at horrorshotsphotography. Twitter at horrorshotspod or Facebook at well, facebook.com slash horror shots, I guess. I think that's how that one works. Now onto the cast itself. Not a lot of fluff going on today. I'm going to get right into it. It's been kind of a long week. It is a thousand degrees where I am right now. I wish I was exaggerating. We talk a lot about hell and demons, and I'm pretty sure they're coming up. It's so hot. So I'm going to get through this as quickly as I can without a whole lot of fluff, even though this is all fluff right now. Today's podcast is about none other than the Nephilim, or Nephilim, depending on how you want to say it. I'm okay with either one. Now, if you read the description, or if you're coming from Morbidly Beautiful, and you see the post there, well, then you're kind of confused about what the Nephilim really are. And I think a lot of people are. Now, there's no doubt that they are supernatural beings of some kind, be it either divine or otherworldly. And I mean otherworldly in a supernatural sense, not necessarily a legitimate other world. But the Nephilim are described, in one sense, as the offspring of the sons of gods and the daughters of men before the deluge, according to Genesis 6.1.4. A similar or identical biblical Hebrew term, read as Nephilim by some scholars, or as the word fallen, by others, appears in Ezekiel 32.27. I quote here one of those passages. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair, and they took wives for themselves, and all that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went 
into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. Now that's Genesis 6.1.4 in the New Revised Standard Version. The word is loosely translated as giants in some Bibles and left untranslated in others. The sons of God have been interpreted as fallen angels in some traditional Jewish explanations. Now that's a brief rundown of what the Nephilim are or were. There are many theories, and I'm going to stick with the biblical version for just the time being. There are a few other theories, I'll get to those shortly. Now this comes from the website BibleArchaeology.org. So it may have a bias, but here's hoping it doesn't. Alrighty. The Nephilim, the product of the sons of God mingling with the daughters of Adam. The great biblical giants, the fallen ones, the Raphiam, the dead ones. These descriptions are all applied to one group of characters found within the Hebrew Bible. Who are the Nephilim? From where do the heroes of old, the men of renown, come? It was once claimed that the mating of the sons of God and the daughters of Adam that resulted in the Nephilim caused the flood. Interesting. And this caused the Nephilim to have a negative reputation. This was believed because the next verse in Genesis after the 614 comes 65 is the introduction to the flood narrative and because their name means fallen ones it's kind of assumed that they fell from heaven cause a whole lot of bad stuff to go on it is unlikely that this interpretation is correct because genesis 6 4 presents nothing but praise for the nephilim and no criticism is present in addition the name fallen ones is likely a reference to their divine patronage transforming or falling into human conditions, albeit an almost superhuman condition. Genesis 6, Ezekiel 32, and Numbers 13 are the only passages that mention the Nephilim by that term. So where does the name Rephaim and the Dead Ones originate? The first thing to recognize is that these are not two separate titles, but rather a name. Rephaim and a meaning Dead Ones are one and the same. The Bible refers to two groups of the Rephaim. The first are dead people who have achieved an almost divine status, similar to the concept of saints. The second is a term that is applied to races of biblical giants. It is this second usage that is often conflated with Nephilim. Now the Rephaim appear in Deuteronomy 2.11, 3.11, 2 Samuel 21.19, and Joshua 11.22, and almost always take the form of one member of the Rephaim, being in opposition with Israel or its representative. In this sense, the Rephaim live up to their name, as their purpose in each narrative is to die. The juxtaposition of the mighty biblical giants defeated by the underdog, God's chosen, is foreshadowed in the very name attributed to these characters. Now that does bring another good point to the table. Can we recall anybody from... Sunday school or any pop culture reference for that matter, the giant that appears in traditional biblical texts or biblical stories, and that's Goliath from David and Goliath. Now, it was believed at one point that Goliath is either a Nephilim himself or an offspring of a Nephilim, giving him this gigantic stature, both physically and figuratively. 
Now, the next source I found comes from Alcation, and it does delve a little bit deeper into the whole biblical aspect, but it also presents a few other scenarios that are religious in nature. The term Nephilim, which is derived from the Greek word nephal, which means to fall, is mentioned only twice in the Bible, as we went over already. Once in Genesis 6, which is before the flood, and then again in Numbers 13, which refers to a time after the flood. Unfortunately, many disagree as to what exactly a Nephilim is. Some non-biblical views are that the Nephilim are space aliens. I kind of lied earlier when I said, not otherworldly, didn't I? Wink, wink. Area 51 siege? Anybody? Maybe we'll find some Nephilim in there. Hmm? Maybe not. Those who view it from the biblical perspective tend to fall into four categories, which is dependent on how they view who the sons of God are. There's the fallen angel view, the fallen angels took over men view, the Sethit view, and the fallen man view. From a biblical standpoint, understanding what a Nephilim is is not crucial to understanding God's message. Many associate them as mere giants, since the King James Version of the Bible uses that term. This translation was in part because the early Latin translation by Jerome used the term gigantis. The Septuagint, which was the translation that would have been used around the time of Christ, also used the Greek word gigantis. Therefore, it is safe to assume that regardless of what viewpoint you believe, Nephilim were abnormally large. Now, the fallen angel view here goes as such. In order to understand each viewpoint, it is important to know the definition given to what the Bible refers to as the sons of God and how they view the Nephilim. For those who believe the fallen angels view, they would interpret them as such. Sons of God equals fallen angels. Nephilim, mix of human and angels. This is one of the more popular views. Many believe that sons of God refer to the fallen angels since Job 1.6, 2.1, and 38.7 refers to angels as the sons of God. Unfortunately, the exact wording is not used in each context, although the sentiment is the same. Some feel that by understanding the Nephilim are half-angel, half-human, other things in history began to make sense, such as the lore of demigods or why God wanted to destroy entire nations. There's also support in ancient texts, such as the Book of Enoch, which is not part of the Bible. Some also point to 2 Peter 2.4 as proof when it says, the angels who sinned. Although this is somewhat misleading as it does not state that those fallen angels had sexual relationships with women nor procreated. Jude 6 also points out angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. Then Jude 7 goes on to compare them to Sodom and Gomorrah, where it states, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Reading these back to back, like that does show possible proof that the fallen angels had sexual immorality as well, but does not implicitly say that. Supporters of this view will also point to Genesis 19.5, where the men of Sodom request to have sex with the two men who had visited the night before. According to Genesis 19.1, these men were, quote, angels. Although the men of Sodom wanting to mate with angels is not the same as actually having intercourse with them. One of the biggest criticisms of this theory is that angels being spiritual beings would not have DNA that could combine with a woman. Nowhere in the Bible do fallen angels ever appear 
to men, nor does it ever state that they have DNA like the other living things on Earth. Some argue that if angels can appear to men, then so can fallen angels. Yet, being able to appear to men and being able to reproduce with them are two completely different things altogether. Another argument is that sometimes men are referred to as the sons of God, such as in Luke 3.38, Matthew 5.9, Romans 8.14 and 19, and Galatians 3.26. Unfortunately, each of these is in Greek, and Genesis was written in Hebrew, so the exact root is not definite. Another problem with this idea is that Jesus states that there are no marriages in heaven, Matthew 22.30, which would mean there would not be procreating. So angels would not need the mm, equipment to procreate. They don't have the, the fun bits, in other words. Another view here is that the fallen angels overtook men. Those who believe that the fallen angels overtook men use these definitions. Sons of God equal men overtaken by fallen angels or demons. Two, Nephilims are 100% human. Since Nephilim is derived from the verb to fall, this would seem to be a possible fit. A possible interpretation of men being overtaken by fallen angels would be that they were possessed by demons. This would mean that the offspring of Nephilim were completely human, not hybrids like the first view. Mark 5.15 shows demon possession, which proves that it can truly happen. But would those possessed by demons be considered sons of God? Nowhere in the biblical text is there a reference to such men being given that title. Since possession did not happen before and after the flood, this would allow for Nephilim to reappear after the flood. Yet, one question that does arise in this theory is, why aren't the Nephilim born today? During the time of Christ, there were demonic possessions for certain, yet no references of Nephilim. And when I say for certain, I, I'm kind of saying it through the eyes of this author. Of course, we can't prove or disprove possession as one of my previous casts kind of went over. So go back and listen to that one if you have any questions about possession. Hopefully I answer a good chunk of them there. The Sethite view. The Sethite view, unlike the others, does not believe angels were involved at all. Believers of this story would use these definitions. Sons of God equal 100% human. Nephilim equals 100% human. This viewpoint is probably the second most popular. Many feel that this definition of Nephilim fits the context best, specifically if you look at Genesis 5. There are different theories as to who the humans refer to as the sons of God. Some believe that they were the kings or rulers. Some believe that Psalm 82, 1-6 supports this. Psalm 82 also clears up the confusion about demigods if you take this interpretation. Others believe that the humans that were referred to as sons of God were from the godly lineage from Adam to Seth down to Noah. This lineage goes Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalal, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lemek, and finally Noah. It is believed that since these godly men married ungodly women, their unions had fallen from God's grace, and their offspring were termed Nephilim. There is support for this definition in Psalm 72.15, as well as Hosea 1.10. Unfortunately, others believe, since they are only similar in wording and not exact wording, that this does not fully support the Sethite view. 
The last viewpoint here is the Fallen Man view, which is very similar to the Sethite view, but differs slightly in the sense that it does not assume that all Seth's descendants were considered godly. It assumes sons of God to be all godly men of the time in Seth's line and outside of his line. It also assumes that not all in Seth's line were godly. A little confusing with the wording there, but we get the gist. Now, the last source I want to go over here is from ancientorigins.net. This is one of my favorite sites. However, I do want to put a little asterisk beside this one because the ending of this article is pretty... I don't want to say funny, but I do want to say interesting. It's very matter-of-fact, so <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But for the meantime, here's what ancientorigins.net has to say on the Nephilim. Who were the Nephilim? The word Nephilim appears twice in the Old Testament of the Bible that we've gone over. So we're not going to go over all the stuff that references sort of the stuff we've already gone over. However, it does state that the traditional definition of Nephilim is giant. Some dictionaries describe the Nephilim as being giants who also possess superhuman strength. The Greek Septuagint, an ancient translation of the Hebrew Bible, refers to them as gigantes which actually means earthborn, a concept we will be coming back to as we continue. Oh, and will we? Yes, we will. However, this article does present some interesting takes on the traditional Judeo-Christian thinking. Now, as we all know, Christian religion or the Catholic offshoots, all that sort of stuff, really have a strong base in pagan mythology. All you have to do is look at the influences from prehistoric times, not even prehistoric, early historic times, ancient history times, to see that a lot of the religions from thousands and thousands of years ago have very similar aspects to what is written in the Bible and what modern-day Christians believe. So, does mythology worldwide support the same belief that Nephilim are sons of God or fallen angels? Now, the notion of giants roaming the earth can be found in cultures worldwide. Greek mythology tells us that the titan Kronos created his father, Uranus, in order to control the Greek pantheon. It is from the blood of the castrated Uranus that fell upon the earth that the giants, the earthborn, were created. The earthborn were, when compared to us, definitely giants. The giants under the rule of Kronos lived during the Golden Age in a time that was free from sorrow or care, and everyone lived happily in joyous lives. It was only after Kronos' son Zeus fought for control of both the heavens and the earth that everything changed. Zeus, in his new role according to the Greek myth, put the giants to work. It was just a matter of time before the giants started ignoring the gods' mandates. They were no longer prostrating themselves to the will of the gods, their lack of complete servitude and their failure to comply with the gods' demands incited that the quote-unquote children of God into a full-blown rebellion against the heavenly gods. Heavy losses were taken on both sides, but their revolution was finally suppressed by the gods. A truce was declared. As part of their reparations to the gods, it was decided to create a new race to handle the burdens that were cast upon the giants, and that would be man. Based upon these mythological traditions, it seems clear that the Earth-born giants, the Nephilim, existed long before man first inhabited Earth. Thus, when you read the line, the Nephilim were on the Earth in those days, 
and also afterwards, it seems clear from this perspective that the authors were not being vague. Instead, they were just making a statement of fact that the Nephilim, the Earthborn, were on Earth at that time. So now comes the most interesting part of this article that I thought was ballsy, to say the least. It goes on to say, Are the Nephilim the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of man? Flat out, no. Here's where it gets very, very intriguing. They were the race of earthborn giants who lived before the creation of man. They are the group who revolted against the gods in antiquity. They are also the ones responsible for the creation of mankind. Additionally, based upon the references that come to us from the Ramayan, it does seem clear that when the gods mated with, quote, ape men, that their offspring were men of renown, heroes, or individuals who are valiant and brave. Like I said, I do enjoy that the author really threw out their, their not opinion, but a fact, even though it was more or less just an opinion. Nevertheless, the look into the Nephilim revealed a lot more than I could ever have anticipated. I didn't expect to go down such a rabbit hole with multiple theories as to what they were. After all, the first time I heard the term Nephilim came from a video game. It came from Diablo, the Diablo series anyway. And I thought, hey, I wonder if those are real. And then I looked into it, and it turns out they do have basis in actual mythology and religion. Mentioned in the Bible and ancient stories from Greek and other cultures around the world as well. Now, this seems like the only thing that is 100% agreed upon is that they were giant. Now, whatever you can say a giant is, maybe that's what they were. We also have to remember this was a different time. Hundreds and thousands of years ago, people weren't as big as they are today. I think I've heard that the average height of somebody who lived in the time of Jesus or before was about five foot two, and that's a full-grown man. Now, bring in somebody who's six foot, which would be an abnormality back then, would stand nearly a foot taller than these people. That would scream giant to me. My day job is a personal trainer. I work in a gym. I see people who I would consider giant all the time. But are they Nephilim? Maybe. Maybe they're just big. Maybe they're just tall. Maybe they're just muscular. Maybe they're just strong. The same way some people are just a little bit smarter than everybody else. Is there anything supernatural behind it? That's something we'll never know. So I hope you enjoyed this episode on the Nephilim. Until next week.